welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we're going to cover the books of Jerem, Omni, and Words of Mormon. These are fascinating little books that cover over 200 years of Nephite history in just a few short pages. Because we are bunching these books together, today I'm going to do more of an overview rather than a walkthrough. So we may be less sequential than we normally are, but I think that keeping the big picture in mind will help you find more meaning in these books. If you listen to our episode on the book of Enos, you'll remember that Enos marks the end of an important era in Nephite history. His generation is the last generation to have first-hand experience of the original family of Lehi and Sariah. We also mentioned that there's something that gets lost when all you have are recorded stories rather than first-hand experience. And I think we'll see that in these books. It won't happen overnight, but the firewall of the prophets will begin to break. And the Nephite propensity for pride and a self-inflated sense of superiority will win out, leading to a virtual destruction of the Nephite people on more than one occasion. This section of the Book of Mormon begins with the records being passed from Enos to Jerem. Jerem is Lehi's great-grandson through Jacob's line. His name means prosperous, and during Jerem's life, the Nephites multiply exceedingly and spread upon the face of the land became exceedingly rich in gold and in silver and in precious things and in fine workmanships of wood and buildings and on and on and on. Jer makes the point that this is a fulfillment of the Lord's covenant with Lehi, that inasmuch as you will keep the commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. And the Nephites do keep the commandments. Quote, They observe to keep the law of Moses and the Sabbath day holy unto the Lord, and they profane not, neither did they blaspheme. And the laws of the land were exceedingly strict. That's good, right? Well, that's not the whole story. He also says that in order to achieve this end, the prophets of the Lord did threaten the people of Nephi, according to the word of God, that if they did not keep the commandments, but should fall into transgression, they should be destroyed from off the face of the land. That's not where you want to be as a people. Yes, they keep the commandments. Yes, they prosper because the Lord is faithful to his covenants. But you don't get the sense that these things are bearing the fruit of the covenant. You don't get the sense of love, atonement, unity, or rebirth. To draw on the allegory of the olive tree, the roots are there, the tree is there, but the branches require constant attention to the tiniest details. Otherwise, they'll produce bad fruit. Additionally, this isn't a time of peace. There's no restoration here. The wars with the Lamanites continue, as do the stereotypes of the Lamanites. We are now three generations into this conflict. It is an inherited conflict. And when that happens, people stop questioning their basic assumptions about the other side. It's obvious that they're evil, they hate us, and that we are the good guys. Whenever you begin to hear this type of thinking, it's a red flag. It means that people have stopped seeing what Jacob called truth or things as they really are. It means that the branches are beginning to die. But again, it's not all bad. Not yet. The prophets, priests, and teachers are really trying. In verse 11, Jerem says that they teach the law of Moses, and I love this part, for the intent for which it was given, persuading them to look forward unto the Messiah and believe in him to come, as though he already was. That's beautiful. 
The prophets, priests, and teachers have no illusions about who they are working with. They know the Nephites are stiff-necked people, and that, if left to themselves, they will make the law about themselves the way that Sherem did. This shows how important a good understanding of the scriptures and really good teaching is. It isn't enough to just cherry-pick scriptures that make people feel warm and fuzzy or that confirm already-held opinions. That's making the scriptures about yourself. The scriptures need to point you beyond yourself, and teachers need to know how to do that. This phrase, to believe in him as though he already was, is so powerful. What if we were to take that approach in our own discipleship? We aren't in a terribly different position here. Yes, we have the records of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. So he did already come, but we are anticipating him coming again. And how do we expect the world to be different when he does come? Can we live as though that world already was? Or, to carry on a theme from our episode on Enos, can we live as though our resurrection already was? As Latter-day Saints, we make this covenant to keep the law of consecration, which means we're willing to give our all to turn this world into Zion, or a place where people are united in love, where we care for each other as a new human family. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, yeah, when Jesus shows up, I'll keep the law of Moses. Look, I get it. It seems naive to believe that we can get people to put down their weapons, to pound their swords into plowshares, so to speak. No reasonable person would believe that lions and lambs could get along, let alone lay down together. But didn't Sherem think that Jacob was being naive for believing that a man would be born centuries in the future who would redeem the world? I tell my students, there's no magic Jesus pill. If we want to be people who can live in Zion, we have to be people who live as if Zion already is. Before we get into Omni, I want to dip into the words of Mormon. I think we'll add some clarity into what we are about to discuss. The words of Mormon probably seem out of place, and that's because it is. Mormon lived centuries after Jesus' appearance, and now we get his words abruptly inserted prior to Jesus' coming. It's also out of place because we don't know who Mormon is. Up until now, our authors have been Nephi, Jacob, and Jacob's descendants. Who is Mormon and why is he interrupting? That's confusing, especially for young readers. It's important to know that what we are reading now, what we've come to call the small plates of Nephi, but more simply put, from 1 Nephi on through Omni, was the last thing that Joseph Smith translated. It was at the end of the record. So why is it the first thing that we read? Because we've lost Mormon's account that covers from the time of Lehi down through King Benjamin. We're missing 400 years of Mormon's book. That section has become known as the Lost 116 Pages, though it was probably significantly longer than that. Mormon gives us some insight as to why he includes the small plates, what we've already been reading, at the end of his record, when he had already covered this period in his own history. I searched among the records, he says, which had been delivered into my hands, and I found these plates, which contain the small account of the prophets, from Jacob down through the reign of this King Benjamin, and also many of the words of Nephi, and the things which are upon these plates are pleasing me, because of the prophecies of the coming of Christ. Wherefore, I chose these things to finish my record upon them. He also says that he's been led by the Spirit to include them. Okay. So with the knowledge that we don't have as much as Mormon intended us to have, let's work with what we do have here in the book of Omni. Jerem's son Omni takes over. Omni is the great-great-grandson of Lehi through Jacob's line. 
He says he's a wicked man. Remember, the branches of the Nephites are beginning to die. He tells us that he's fought against the Lamanites pretty much his whole life. This is a multi-generational hatred that is formed. Then he passes the plates to his son Amaron. Amaron, now the fifth generation from Lehi and Sariah, says 320 years have passed away, and the more wicked part of the Nephites were destroyed. This is the first real Nephite genocide. There is a righteous remnant, that's an Isaiah concept, left over, but I have to think that we are missing so much about the wickedness and the suffering of this time. Amron then passes the records to his brother Chemish, still the fifth generation, who doesn't say much. Historian Don Bradley wrote this incredible book called The Lost 116 Pages. He really brings to life this stretch of Nephite history through clues in the text and early accounts from the people who had read the pages before they were lost by Martin Harris. One of the little details that he uncovers is that we have this record keeper named Amaron at 320 years after Lehi's exodus. Amaron's brother keeps the record also, and that 320 years really marks the beginning of a major decline in Nephite civilization. In 4th Nephi, we have another record keeper named Amaron, whose brother also kept the records. And at 320 years, he hides the records because things are getting so bad among the Nephites. This Amaron is, of course, the prophet who passes the records to Mormon. It's just a tiny detail that shows how careful these authors were. Mormon, no doubt, has some affection for Amaron, and perhaps being the careful reader and writer that he is, intends us to see this parallel. Back to the book of Omni, this is the beginning of the end for the Nephites as we know them. Chemish passes the record to his son Abinadom, who knows if there's a connection to Abinadi there, and Abinadom passes it to his son Amalekai. We are now seven generations away from Lehi and Sariah. Amalekai is where the story begins to slow down again. Right away he introduces us to a man named Mosiah. Now this is the first Mosiah, the father of King Benjamin, the grandfather of the second Mosiah. And the thing we learn about Mosiah is that he's been made king over Zarahemla. Um, what? This is the first we're hearing of Zarahemla, and as far as we know, all of the Nephite kings up until this point have been named Nephi, so there's clearly something wrong here. If we keep reading, we quickly find out what it is. Mosiah, presumably a Nephite prophet, has led the people on another exodus, this time out of the land of Nephi. Later, we'll learn that one of Amulek's ancestors, Aminadi, another possible connection to Abinadi, interpreted writings on the wall of the temple. That was likely around this time. So the first Book of Mormon exodus is Lehi leading his family out of Jerusalem. The second is Nephi leading part of his family to the land of Nephi. And now the third is Mosiah leading his people to the land of Zarahemla. Mosiah is probably a really important figure that Mormon probably told us a ton about in his now lost record. Thanks, Martin. We can learn some things about him, though. And a lot of this I've taken from Don Bradley, so you should really just go read his book that I mentioned earlier. But let's start with Mosiah's name. I think Hugh Nibley was the first to speculate that it was a combination of Moses, who also led an exodus, and Josiah, who was also a reformer king. Mosiah is also basically the same word as Messiah, and was pronounced and spelled the same in the original dictation of the Book of Mormon, 
We also learn that Mosiah was a seer and used the gift and power of God to interpret words on a large Jaredite stone that has been found. That's the same language that Joseph Smith used when he was describing the translation of the Book of Mormon. And there is some evidence to suggest that it was actually Mosiah that found the Nephite interpreters, what later come to be known as the Urim and Thummim that Joseph Smith uses. In the Old Testament, the Urim and Thummim was part of the temple robes of the high priest who would use them to understand the will of God. I could really go down a rabbit hole here, but for the sake of keeping this somewhat brief, Mosiah starts as a prophet, leading an exodus, finds the Urim and Thummim, thereby becoming a priest, and is then anointed a king. Messiah literally means the anointed one. He's a prophet, priest, and king. He's a symbol of Christ. We're really going to have to skip over a lot here. I may have bitten off more than I can chew putting this all in one episode. But one more thing about Mosiah. He's a descendant of Joseph of Egypt. When they get to Zarahemla, they find another group that has been led out of Jerusalem. Remember, Lehi lived during the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. It's the same Zedekiah who was king when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Well, it turns out one of his sons, Mulek, who was probably actually named Molek, escaped and was led with a group of people over to the New World. So the people of Zarahemla, maybe all of them, are descendants of the house of David. Mulek and his descendants would literally have been David's heir. But they anoint Mosiah, a descendant of Joseph, to be the king. There may be all kinds of reasons for that, including the fact that the Book of Mormon is supposed to be the record of the Lord's covenant with Joseph's descendants. But from here on out, the Nephites will be a multi-ethnic, multi-tribal people, and it's going to create problems. The people of Zarahemla accept a Nephite king, the Nephite records, the Nephite language, the Nephite religion, but unity will be a real challenge going forward, and we'll see that in the books of Mosiah, Alma, and so on, all the way up until Jesus. We learn a little bit about the Jaredites here also. I'm going to save that for later. Just know that they make an appearance. We also learn that Amalekai, Jacob's descendant and the record keeper, doesn't have any children, so he passes the record to Benjamin, Mosiah's son, who is now the king, and that Benjamin has led the Nephites in a massive war against the invading Lamanites. On top of that, Mormon tells us, in the words of Mormon, it came to pass that after there had been false Christs and their mouths had been shut, and they punished according to their crimes. And after there had been false prophets and false preachers and teachers among the people, and all these having been punished according to their crimes, and after there having been much contention and many dissensions away unto the Lamanites, that Benjamin labored with the prophets to bring about a time of peace. During this time of peace, we learn that Amalekai has a brother who goes with a group of people back to the land of Nephi from the land of Zarahemla to try and reclaim that land from the Lamanites. That group is known as the people of Zenith, and that's where we'll get the story of King Noah, Abinadi, and Alma. Again, Amalekai's father was named Abinadam. Maybe Amalekai's brother or nephew is Abinadi. There's no way of confirming that, but it would help us to understand why Abinadi has such a love for Jacob, since that would make Abinadi his direct descendant. We'll cycle back to the words of Mormon in the future, but just know that verses 9 through 11 might be Mormon's farewell words to us. Just a few final thoughts about these books before wrapping up. They are a reminder that there's more that we don't know about the scriptures than we do know. So we have to stay curious. We also have a really clear history of the record that we're reading. Most ancient books aren't as clear as the Book of Mormon about authorship. 
For example, it's unclear who wrote most of the Bible, but we know who wrote the Book of Mormon, and that's a blessing. Finally, even when the record keepers are admittedly wicked, like Omni, they still want to keep the commandments to preserve the genealogy. That's praiseworthy to a certain extent, but it's also superficial. Those weren't the only or even the most important commandments given to them by Lehi, Nephi, Jacob, and Enos. There's maybe even a sense of national pride in keeping the genealogies. But we see that that national pride isn't enough. Sometimes it can even be a barrier if it serves to generate a sense of superiority over other children of God and or traps us in multi-generational conflicts and stops us from repenting. Wow, that was a lot. Hopefully not too much. And hopefully I didn't go too quick. Just know, it could have been worse. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.